Hello and welcome to Look Down There, the show where we talk about all the things we don't talk about. I'm your host, Michelle Lamore. Today, my guest is a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern's University's Feinberg School of Medicine and the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause. She is a certified practitioner of the North American Menopause Society, a member of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, and the Scientific Network on Female Sexual Health and Cancer. She has been featured on Oprah, CNN, Good Morning America, and now look down there. Please welcome my very esteemed guest, Dr. Lauren Stryker. Welcome. I am so happy to be a guest on Look Down There. And you say talk about the things no one talks about except for me, because this is what I talk about all day. So I'm happy to be having this conversation with you. Yes, yes. And it's so good to see you. You know, we met back in Chicago multiple times. Um, we even did a radio show together with Rick Kogan, which was so much fun. And, you know, I've always remembered you and and your just the work that you're doing was so important, but I didn't realize how important it was at the time when we had met. And, you know, now I'm 42 and I'm thinking, oh God, here's menopause coming. I'm just staring right at it. And, you know, nights that I can't sleep, I'm like, am I not sleeping? Cause it's menopause time. Like, <laughs> I'm like, what's going on here. So, um, yeah. So menopause seems to be, you know, the thing that is looming in, in all of our lives, but no one really wants to talk about. And it seems that menopause, despite it having its own musical, uh, still is a mystery. So why do you think that is? Well, I think anything that hints at ageism or loss of sexuality is going to be somewhat taboo. And so often people say, well, you know, mothers should be talking to their daughters about this. They talk about puberty. They tell them where to get their you know, first tampon, their first pad, how to prepare for cramps. Why don't they talk to them about menopause? And my response always is, is because no one talks to the mothers. And so these mothers don't even know what to tell their daughters because they're not fully informed. And you're already miles ahead of the game by saying at 42, I should be learning about this because one of the biggest issues is that women are blindsided when in their 40s they start to have these hormonal issues because they're thinking, okay, I've got plenty of time. You know, menopause is, is grandma or great grandma. And the reality is that while the average age in this country is 51, it is perfectly normal to start to go through perimenopausal hormonal fluctuations early in the 40s, mid 40s. So this is the time to educate yourself. And like you said, people are not talking about it. They don't want to admit that maybe they're not 20 anymore. Um, their doctors, even if they're seeing a gynecologist regularly, generally are not bringing it up and women are in the dark. And we are starting to see more conversation about this. And this is good news, but not nearly enough. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about being in the dark and how we are in the dark, but I also, I wonder, are my, are the doctors in the dark? Like, do they, are they hoarding information and not sharing it? Are they reluctant to talk about it? Do they not actually know anything? They don't, that, that, 
I'll take that. I'll take that answer. They don't know. You know, this week on Instagram, I think it was last week, I had a quick story post that basically every Friday I put out four things, you know, four things for this, four things for that, four things for that. And my last Friday, four things was four reasons your doctor doesn't talk about menopause. And it was the only time I've ever done this. I gave the same four reasons because he or she's not an expert and doesn't know solutions. He or she is not an expert and doesn't know solutions. <laughs> Reality is, is that doctors don't bring it up because they are not experts and they don't know what to tell you. And so, you know, it's not surprising though, when you think in terms of, when you look at a typical OBGYN residency, even an outstanding residency in four years, they're learning about delivering babies and contraception and hysterectomies and endometriosis. And they learn next to nothing about menopause or sexual medicine, which is a whole separate thing. And in fact, you know, I'm at Northwestern, which is arguably one of the best residencies in the country. And I run one of the best menopause centers, I think the best in the country. And the residents do not spend one minute in our menopause center during their four years. And it's a problem because they are getting out. And those are the gynecology residents. You can imagine other doctors, internists, family practice, all these other specialties. And when I give the medical students a lecture and they get one lecture, it's 20 minutes uh, in, in four years on sexual dysfunction. And when I say to them, I challenge you to think of one specialty that this isn't relevant. I don't care if you're a cancer doc or a diabetes doc or neurologist. Every single woman who has one of those illnesses is going to have sexual or menopause consequences as a result of that. And everyone's like, oh, God, I never thought of that. But that's the truth. I'm, I'm doing some research right now on um, the inability of diabetics to have an orgasm. And the reason they have such difficulty is because just like you need little nerve endings that function other places in the body, you need healthy nerves in the clitoris. And you've heard of diabetic neuropathy, of course, where people who are diabetic get a nerve ending damage in their feet and their hands. So they have numbness, but you can get it in your clitoris too. And I can guarantee you that not one endocrinologist is talking to their patient about the fact that they're no longer to have an orgasm. So it was a long answer to your very appropriate question of why aren't doctors talking about it? They're not talking about menopause because they are not experts and they're not going to go there. Yeah. And I'm always surprised how many doctors in your field have no sexual education and do not yeah. speak to their patients about their sexuality, their experiences. Are they enjoying it? Is, is, is there pain? Like, these questions should be standard, but it's they should be standard. And the standard question is, um, and in fact, I just wrote an article about this. that's going to be published in the scientific journal, but the standard question is, is are you sexually active? The most meaningless question on the face of the earth. What does that mean? Why is your doctor asking that? Is he or she asking because they want to know if maybe you could be pregnant? Maybe you need contraception? Maybe you want a sexually transmitted infection screen? That is a ridiculous question. 
Are you having oral sex? Are you having anal sex? Are you having vaginal penile penetration? What do they even mean by sex? It's a ridiculous question. And when, when I talk to groups of women and I'll say, okay, raise your hand if your doctor even used the word sex at your last visit, brought it up. But usually about three quarters of the hands are up. And then I'll say, all right, now leave your hand up if the doctor asked if you were having any sexual problems such as pain and the hands start to go down. And then I'll say, and now I want you to leave your hand up if your doctor asked you if you were able to have an orgasm. Every hand goes down. I mean, Michelle, you've been going to doctors your whole life. Has a doctor ever said to you, are you able to have an orgasm? No, no. And in fact, I had to confront the doctor because the doctor kept calling my labia my bottom. Come on. <laughs> like, no, no, we're not doing this. Uh, yeah, don't even get me started on, on that. But, you know, but when we when we think in terms of the vulva and vulvar health, you know, I run a vulvar health clinic. I don't know if you know that one. It's one of the few in the United States. And one of the things that's striking is even good gynecologists don't even look at the vulva. They're putting their speculum in to do the pap test so quickly mm-hmm. and doing everything else that they spend really no time on the vulva. And our vulvar exam is so long and so detailed. And we also give the patient a mirror, of course, so that she can follow along. And we talk as we're talking about the different parts of the vulva. And for many women, this is the first time they've looked at their vulva. It is certainly the first time a doctor has walked them through all of the different bottom parts down there and told them everything. And and they're grateful. I mean, whereas a woman might start off saying, oh, really? You want, you're going to give me a mirror? I don't know how I feel about that. I'm like, well, let's just go with, with it and see how it feels. And by the end of it, their response usually is, thank you. No one ever took time to explain before where my urethra is, where my clitoris is, what these parts are for. And, you know, again, circling back to what you first started talking about, you know, how come people aren't talking about menopause? We're also just not talking about normal anatomy in women and sexuality. It's, it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah. I can imagine that experience with your patient to be very emotional. Like, have you had some kind of breakthroughs on the, on the table in a moment like that? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny because we get every reaction you can think of in our clinic. And and I run, we have five programs. We have the program for menopause. We have the program for sexual medicine, which is women who are not in menopause, but who are having sexual issues. We have the vulvar vaginal program, and then we have a bone program and, and we have a laser program. But so we don't see first and second and third and fourth opinions. We see fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth opinions. You know, we see the women who have literally traveled the country and have been to multiple doctors and we see them and I have such an amazing, amazing staff. And someone will walk in and literally in 10 minutes, we will say, this is why you're having pain. This is what's going on. And we're going to fix it. We're going to make it go away. And we get the every reaction from they're so grateful and they, you know, start to cry and then they're angry. Mm-hmm. Why did it take me six years and 12 doctors? How come? And, you know, and I don't fault other doctors for not knowing this stuff because what we do is very, very specialized. But what I do fault them for is, is not saying, I don't know, let me send you to someone who can help you. You know, it's fine to not be an expert in something. I'm not an expert in everything. You know, that's, I can name a million things that I refer out because I, I'm not an expert, but 
when it comes to sexual medicine and when it comes to sex and menopause, too many doctors, quite frankly, they, they don't want to really admit that they're not an expert. So they kind of wing it. And that's not fair. It's not fair to their patients. It's not fair to women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so talking about like perimenopause versus yeah. menopause, how do you know when that transition yeah. has happened? How do you know when you're fully in it and fully yeah. done with it? Yeah. You're done with it when you die. Okay. Because, great. That's good news because <laughs> menopause really is, is when your ovaries are no longer making estrogen and the repercussions of that and your ovaries never kick back in. So you might not have symptoms of menopause anymore, but you are still post-menopause and will continue to be post-menopause. And I think that's one of the things that we now appreciate is that the impact of estrogen is on every single cell in the body from your brain to your bladder, to your skin on down. And so when I think in terms of menopause, I think of for the next 50 years, what are we going to do to maximize that you are going to not only be functional, but to really feel good um, and be able to do what you like. So in answer to your question, where do, when does perimenopause morph into menopause? Well, basically by definition, uh, perimenopause morphs into menopause when you haven't had a period for 12 months. And um, that's helpful if you're a woman who has a uterus and has periods, but we are looking at at least one third of the population that does not. And in fact, on my podcast, the menopause podcast, I did an episode about a month or two ago, which is doing shockingly well, which is how do you know if you're in menopause, if you don't get periods? And it's basically looking at the woman who maybe has an IUD, who's had a hysterectomy, who's had an endometrial ablation, who's taking continuous birth control pills. She, none of those people get periods. How are they going to know? So while that's the official definition my definition is when your ovaries are out of business, when they are no longer making estrogen and they're not going to kick back in. So perimenopause, your hormone levels can be up and down and all over the place, which is why it's a waste of time to measure levels because they're going to be different Monday, one o'clock than they are Wednesday, three o'clock. But this is the period of time when you don't throw out the tampons and you might be careful about wearing white and getting on a plane because you could get a period anytime and you're not gonna know it. And your hormones can be up, down, and all over the place, and so can your symptoms. Once you enter menopause and you're no longer having these hormonal fluctuations and you are no longer getting periods, then it's the difference is, is that you're not gonna get those unexpected periods. Your hormones are gonna be a little bit more predictable and there are certain things that quite frankly will get much, 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 much better and other things that will get worse. Mm, yeah. So those periods, I've, I've heard of the term flash periods. So is that, um, that's kind of like, if you don't have a period for five months and then suddenly you have one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's an unexpected period, basically, yeah. you know, surprise period, flash period. Um, and, and sometimes I'll have someone who comes in and says, I haven't had a period for 10 years. And then I got a period that is not a flash period. That is a postmenopausal bleeding episode, which doesn't mean that something terrible is going on, but it, you don't ignore it. It's not okay. You know, all bleeding is not a period. So mm -hmm. during this time, if you've been 12 months without a period and then you start to bleed, need to check it out. If you have, you know, continuous bleeding and spotting, heavy periods, doesn't mean there's something serious, but you don't ignore it. You need to check it out. Yeah. The only thing expected about perimenopause is that everything is unexpected. 
<laughs> it's completely I unpredictable. I call it, you know, the perimenopausal roller coaster yeah. because it's different for everybody. There are some women that go from having periods and making estrogen to not, and they don't even miss a beat. They're like, what was the big deal? That's like 15% of people, maybe 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the other 80%, some people, it's very, very rough. It's a very difficult time and other people, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was telling you before we started recording that I was out with some friends last night and, um, you know, it was kind of like an episode of sex in the city, except we were all Samantha. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, one of the big questions they had was, um, does birth control affect you know, when you go into menopause, like if you, if you're on it consistently, does it hit you, put you into menopause prematurely or does it delay it or what, like, what is the effects of? So so this is the answer. Um, when you take, and when you're talking about birth control, I'm assuming that you're meaning hormonal birth control, like pills or patch or something like that. Whenever you're taking hormonal birth control, basically What's happening is the birth control is saying to your ovaries, you take a break, we're going to take it from here. So it's the pill talking. So let's say you have someone who is 54 years old and she's taking birth control pills and she's getting a period every month. Is that the pill or is that her? It's the pill. It's not affecting what her, you know, when her ovaries are going to wind down. It's just they're resting. They're in hibernation. They're sleeping. And by the same token, if you have a woman who's 54 years old who's on birth control pills and she stops getting her period, does that mean she's in menopause? Absolutely not. Anyone who takes the pill for a long period of time is going to very often not get a period. So if, and, and this was just what this podcast was, if you know, how do you know um, if you're on a birth control pill or this or that, if you're in perimenopause, basically the only way to know is to stop. So if you're 53 years old and you're taking birth control pill and you want to know where you are, you can't measure hormones. You can't really tell anything while you're taking the pill. You need to go off the pill and it's possible that you've been in full-blown post-menopause for five years, but didn't know it because you were on the pill. Or you might start to get your period regularly again because you're not in menopause, but the pill's not going to change it. Mm-hmm. The pill's going to mask it. It may control the symptoms, but it's not going to change it. And for women who are taking birth control pills, and if they're doing fine, and if they're a non-smoker who doesn't have other medical risks, the recommendation among menopause experts is to continue your pill up until age 55, because you may well be in menopause or perimenopause, but you won't know it. And this is essentially hormone therapy that's going to control these hormonal fluctuations. And it's really a very good approach to perimenopause in women who are on the pill and who are good pill candidates. Hmm. Yeah. So that brings me to my question about treatment. And, you know, like you were saying, all of our experiences are very different. So I can imagine that the treatment should also be very specific Mm -hmm. and customized. Right. But maybe that's not always the case. And it's just like a blanket thing that, um, you know, people get treated with, but do you have opinions about, um, you know, whether or not to do hormone replacement therapy, or is that just a very individualized? Uh... Well, first of all, I have opinions about everything. But my opinions are based on, on the science. Yeah. So this is basically the gospel of every menopause expert. When I'm talking about menopause experts, I'm not talking about self-proclaimed experts. I'm talking about the people in the academic centers who do research 
who lecture, who really know the data and know the literature. Hormone therapy is absolutely safe, effective, and appropriate for most women, particularly if they are either having symptoms such as hot flashes, insomnia, or if they are at risk for another issue such as osteoporosis. The, the reality is, is that at best, you know, less than 10% of women are taking hormone therapy. It should be more like 90%. So let's just, as an example, talk about hot flashes because that is the most common symptom that women have. 80% of women will have hot flashes and almost 80% of women are told, tough it out. Don't do anything about it, which is very bad advice because first of all, hot flashes on average last seven to 10 years. It's genetic. Black women, it tends to be longer. Um, Asian women, a little bit less. But the point is, it's not something that's just for a few years. It's seven to 10 years. But the thing that most women and quite frankly, most doctors are not aware of is that it's not just about quality of life in terms of hot flashes. We know that hot flashes actually impact on cardiovascular health, on bone health, on cognitive function, on sleep. This is why I wrote, here's my, this is why I wrote Hot Flash Hell, which I have a series of books on menopause, but Hot Flash Hell is really talking about the impact that hot flashes have on literally every cell in your body. And when you look at women that have cardiovascular disease, we know that that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women in this country. When does it accelerate? Post-menopause. Who does it accelerate most quickly in? Women that have hot flashes. You know, there's a very robust science behind this and women are not getting the memo and their doctors are not getting the memo. So hot flashes need to be treated. Insomnia needs to be treated. A good night's sleep is one of the most important things that you can do for yourself in terms of not only your general health and well-being, but being able to think, being able to function. When we look at cognitive function during perimenopause, you've heard of brain fog. You've heard of, I can't remember why I walked into the room. That actually gets better for the most part. That's more of a perimenopause than a postmenopause. But the point is, is that hormone therapy will mitigate that. We know that estrogen decreases the risk of breast cancer. I will say that again. Estrogen decreases, does not increase the risk of breast cancer. That old study that showed that there was a slight increased risk in breast cancer and hormone therapy, that was because of the progesterone. We use a different progesterone now, and we have multiple, multiple studies, including one that just came out a few weeks ago, that shows that micronized progesterone does not increase the risk of breast cancer. So for women that are taking hormone therapy, they are at no greater risk of breast cancer than the rest of the country, and they are most likely at lower risk. So, I mean, you know, we can bust myths all day long, but this is the problem we have is that women are not getting the right information. Yeah. And I think there's such a stigma around taking hormones, you know, and you said it like, just tough it out. Right. Like, I mean, that's our, that's our maxim for most things in our lives, but you know, when we're dealing with, you know, insomnia and hot flashes, which may be like the least offenders of menopause. I I don't know. Uh, like it's, we haven't gotten to the vagina and the vulva yet. We'll get there, but yeah, exactly. But but if this all happened to men, there would be no controversy. They would all be taking hormone therapy. And 
it's it's it, there's an enormous disparity in terms of general health between men and women, but certainly when it comes to midlife health and we're not even getting into the sexual health yet. Yeah, so there's guys had, you know, do, guys all of a sudden they turn 50. If guys turn 50 and their penis shrunk and they couldn't have sex, there would be no controversy about giving them treatment. Right. There would be no like, oh, do you think we should or shouldn't or just, well, this is how, this is what happens when you get older. It would not happen. Right. Like you don't have value anymore. So just deal with that. Right. Um, so when you, when you start hormone therapy first, when, when should you start it? And then also how yeah. long do you do it? Cause you said, you know, yeah. this lasts till you right. die. So, so are you so on it is, forever? This is, this is the way it works. We start hormone therapy at whatever time someone is symptomatic. So if someone is 42, 43, 44, that's when we start. If someone is more of a kind of a more average age, late forties, 50, that's when we start. What becomes a little tricky is the woman who says, okay, I stopped my periods 10 years ago. I'm now 62 years old. I'm still having hot flashes. Can I start now? And that's a little bit dicier because we do know from the literature that the best time to start hormone therapies within the first five to 10 years of menopause, ideally the sooner, the better. And that's because the hot flashes do damage. And then when you start hormone therapy, we actually get into some trouble with it. So we started early and we never stop. Um, and the reason that we never stop is because there's not one scientific reason that shows it's beneficial to stop. And there are a lot of reasons why it's beneficial to continue. And if a doctor says to you, um, you've been on it five years, it's time to go off. The response is, is show me in the literature where it says that's a good idea. You know, the, I don't know if you've heard of the North American Menopause Society, NAMS, but they're basically the organization that does a lot of the research and the teaching and the education around this. And they're actually quite conservative. Um, and even in their new statement, they basically do not say go off hormone therapy. And a few years ago, I was at the menopause conference and I'm very active in these conferences. And I was asked to moderate a panel on when should you stop hormone therapy, five years or never. And I thought, great, terrific panel, happy to moderate that panel. So I sent um, emails to all of the big time, you know, academic major menopause experts in the country. And I said, I'm moderating this panel. Do you want to be on the panel? And everyone said, sure, I'd love to be on the panel. And I said, okay, what side are you on? They were all on the same side. They were all on never go off. And I said, I need someone to come on and argue the other side. And everyone said, no, we can't argue the other side because there's nothing, nothing that supports the idea that you've been on hormone therapy for three, four, five years, and now it's time to go off. If someone has a reason, you know, I mean, then that's, that's different. But if there's no reason, then we don't take people off. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into the, the vulvar vaginal health here. So we all, we all know about uh, vaginal dryness, but you know, what other things can we yeah. expect? So, so the medical term for everything that occurs in the vulva and vagina and the genital area is genital urinary syndrome of menopause. You, I hope, heard that term before. And, and the reason that we use that term is because it's acknowledging that it's not just the vulva 
and the vagina and sexual issues. It's also the urinary tract because we know that the urinary tract is loaded with estrogen receptors, just like the vulva and the vagina are. And so when we look at the consequences of being post-menopause, we find that in addition to the vaginal dryness and for some women, the burning, the itching, the painful sex, the general vulvar discomfort, we also find that a lot of women are having urinary symptoms such as urgency, that got to go feeling, burning when they urinate and recurrent urinary tract infections. And too many women are not aware that this is a consequence of lack of estrogen. And so, you know, and, and actually I just recorded a podcast on this recurrent urinary tract infections. Um, and it's, it's really this whole concept of women who are sent to urologists and they're put on antibiotics and they're told you need a cystoscopy when in fact their estrogen starved tissues just need a little love and need a little estrogen. And when we talked about earlier about hot flashes, we were talking systemic estrogen, either delivered through the skin or by mouth that works throughout the body. But when we're looking specifically at the um, at the genital region and and the urinary tract. Then, in general, we're talking about local vaginal estrogen therapy, which comes in many many forms. You know, people are familiar with the cream, but that's one of many forms, and that's my other book, which is sliding away. This is basically a, a women's guide to to general urinary syndrome and menopause and the vulvar and, and vaginal problems. Um, which I know this is a podcast, so people can't see me holding up my book, but. Um, but the reason why I wrote this series that I'm in the process of, and the next one is on orgasm, the reason that I wrote this series is because everyone's symptoms are different. And I found that women don't want to buy a whole book on menopause and plow through this encyclopedia of menopause if their only issue is painful sex or vaginal dryness. So I decided to write a number of short books on various topics so that people can basically read about what they want, which is also the premise behind my podcast. You know, every episode is, is, is a different topic, the itchy vulva, the recurrent urinary tract infection, you know, hot flashes, all of that, because everyone's menopause experience is so different. Yeah. And how did this help uh, you with your transition or into menopause? And like, did you feel like you were equipped and ready or were there things that surprised you even being the expert that you are? Um, well, let's put it this way. When I had my first hot flash, I started my estrogen within an hour and never stopped. So <laughs> I have no, I have no complaints. Um, it was actually very funny because it was, um, back in, you know, I'm, I'm imaging myself, but it was when Obama was, was, was running for his second term. And I was at a, um, a fundraising event for Obama and he walked in and I immediately got a hot flash and I'm thinking, is this Obama or is it, <laughs> but I wasn't taking any chances. So I immediately started my hormone therapy. And, and quite frankly, if you talk to any menopause expert, it's the rare menopause expert that is not taking hormone therapy. Mm. Um, and, you know, so my experience does not in any way inform my, uh, you know, what I tell patients or what I get out there as a menopause expert. I always tell people you don't have to have had an appendectomy to know how to do one. Um, and and quite frankly, and, and I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a, a male menopause expert, who's truly one of the best menopause experts in the country in terms of his knowledge and his research and his educational efforts. And he was doing the old, oh God, nobody wants to come see me because I'm a guy. And I'm thinking, well, they're lost because no one's better and smarter at this than you are. And it's really, you know, for the women out there who only have a male gynecologist or only have access to a male gynecologist, don't write them off. You're not looking for a girlfriend. You're looking for an expert. And 
you know, if that person happens to be a guy, then, then so be it. You know, you want mm-hmm. someone who knows what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to, um, you know, the, the vaginal vulva side effects. Um, is that one of the reasons why you feel like your sex drive plummets or like, you're just like, I'm just not feeling sexy yeah. or is it just that both that and the dip in hormones. So libido is actually the most common sexual complaint that we get in every age group. You know, as I mentioned, I run a sexual medicine clinic that we see 20s, 30s, 40 year olds. And then of course we have the women who are 40 to 100. And across the board, that is the number one thing that brings someone in is that they have a loss of libido. And loss of libido is um, one of the most complex things to to treat quite frankly because it is so multifactorial there's so many things that impact on libido starting with relationships starting with cultural experiences you know history of trauma medical illnesses hormones neurotransmitters medications you might take what is your sexual experience i mean you know i'm i'm writing a book on libido and i'm thinking i don't know <laughs> you know it is just too much so you know when someone comes in and says I'm here because I have no libido. And obviously I'm going to ask them a lot of questions about their medical history and, and, and what changed and when it changed. Um, but for the woman who says I had a great libido and right about the time I entered menopause was when my libido just plummeted. Well, in most cases, that is going to be a direct consequence of the change in her hormones, but it also may be because of pain. You know, when I say to someone, okay, well, when, you know, are you, are you having sex now? Are you having penetrative sexual activity with your toy or your penis or whatever's in your life? And when they say, um, no, it hurts. And I'm like, okay, well, no wonder you have no libido. Your vagina is not stupid. And your vagina is talking to your brain and saying, don't do that because it really hurts. So it doesn't do any good to talk about libido until we get rid of the pain, until we make sure that sexual activity is pleasurable, whatever you want that sexual activity to be. Um, and, and sometimes the treatment for that is going to be hormonal. There's no question. Um, sometimes it's going to be a lot of other things, but we also find that women who are going through menopause and if they're, maybe their vaginas are okay, but they're having horrible hot flashes and they don't get more than two hours of sleep. Well, if you're not sleeping, you're not going to want to have sex, even if you like the person in the bed with you, you know? So that's why you, you can't make a blanket statement about libido. Some things I can, if you say I went through menopause and your vagina is dry and I'm like, I got that, you know, <laughs> this is what you should do. But if someone says I have no libido, that takes a bit more work to figure it out. And we do, it's not like we can't, you know, fix it, but it's very collaborative. I work with, you know, amazing doctors, pelvic floor physical therapists, sex therapists. We have trauma-informed folks. I mean, there are so many aspects to this that we all need to come together and say, okay, here's this this person, say this woman, because we're gynecologists, we don't do the guys. Uh, we see anybody with a vagina, no matter how they identify, we just need a vagina to work with because you know we're gynecologists. And so, you know, we say, okay, here's this person and let's put all of the elements of what's going on with them together. And we actually have monthly meetings, collaborative meetings where we present the tough cases and say, how can we help this person? Mm, I love that approach. It's, it's a whole problem. It's not just a it's part. It's a whole person. It's a whole yeah. person. And you know, and it's funny because sometimes I'll think I'll know something really well. And then 
my pelvic floor physical therapists, who I call them my magicians, um, you know, they're across <laughs> the hall from me. And I might only see a person once and then I don't see them again for months, but they're seeing them every week. And they're there for an hour. They do a lot of talking. And a lot of times my my physical therapist will come to me and say, you know, I saw so-and-so and you may not know this, but, you know, her boyfriend is being abusive or she's got X, Y, Z going on. And I'm like, I had no idea. And so, you know, that's the beauty. And that's why I always say our menopause center and our sexual menopause center is the best in the country because we are the only ones that we are all physically in the same place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Public floor physical therapists, the sex therapists. Yeah. We, we work, we work with multi-specialties to get one, this. To one get stop it. shop. Pretty much. We try. Yeah. We try. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have two more questions for you. So the first, um, before we hit record, you were talking about um, the effect on orgasm that menopause has, which yeah. I had never heard of or thought about. So yeah. can you speak more about that? Yeah. So I mentioned that libido, lack of libido is the most common concern that we get post-menopause. Number two is orgasm. Now, when we think in terms of having an orgasm, there's two categories of having difficulty with orgasm. One is what we call primary anorgasmia, which means someone who's never had an orgasm in their life ever. And those are generally easy to fix because what that person needs is a map to their clitoris and an explanation of how to have an orgasm because their mother never told them. And they have this expectation that they're going to have penetrative sex and that they're going to have an orgasm. And that never happens um, unless there are simultaneous clitoral stimulation. So primary orgasm problems are not the menopause problems. These are generally younger women, although there's plenty of post-menopause women that have never had an orgasm. But that in most cases, unless there's a history of trauma or some medical illness. In most cases, this is really just about an anatomy lesson and an education. But acquired orgasmic difficulty is what we see post-menopause. And these are women who say, I used to have an orgasm just fine, whether it was with my vibrator or manual stimulation or oral stimulation or whatever. And now either it's not happening or it's so weak or it's so unsatisfying or it's so disappointing or it takes so long. I get exhausted trying and it's not worth the effort. I'm ready to give up. And so when we look at what it takes to have an orgasm, surprisingly, estrogen is not a requirement. Estrogen helps, but it's not a requirement. So the number one thing you need is arousal, arousal and orgasm and libido, not the same thing arousal, if you're not aroused, you're not going to have an orgasm. You're not going to be aroused if you have pain, of course. You're not going to be aroused if you have all these other things going on. Um, But you need arousal. You generally need some kind of physical stimulation using usually clitoral, but you know, we have all kinds of other pathways to orgasm, as we say. Um, and then you need to have nerve endings that are sensitive enough to feel what's going on in the clitoris. So that's number three. And then number four is you need good blood supply. So what happens post-menopause to mess this up? Well, nerve endings sometimes get tired, both as a result of aging um, sometimes other medical illnesses that occur. We have a lot of women who are you know, in that same age as, as menopause. You've got diabetes, you can have multiple sclerosis, you can have all kinds of things that might impact on nerve health. And then we have vascular problems. You need good blood supply. So if those little nerve endings in the clitoris are not getting a good blood supply, 
Well, suddenly they're just going to give up and say, you know, hey, you can rub it all you want. Nothing's happening. So our approach to women who are having difficulty with orgasm is number one, to try and figure out why, you know, what, what's changed, what's happening. And then, of course, to increase blood supply to the clitoris. And there's a number of different ways we can do that. We want to make sure that you've got adequate blood supply so that those nerve endings are going to be as healthy as possible. And then we increase stimulation. And interestingly, and I actually just gave a lecture about this the other night, and I'm giving a lecture on this in Portugal next month um, at the International Menopause Society, but the impact on vibration and orgasm. Because when we look at nerve endings, there's lots of different kinds of nerves and there's lots of different kinds of receptors. And interestingly, it's the nerves and the receptors that respond to vibration that stay healthiest for the longest period of time. Hmm. So a lot of times it's as simple as saying to someone, you have to incorporate a vibrator into whatever you're doing sexually, whether it's solo or partnered but you have to use a vibrator to have an orgasm. And for a lot of women, this is a no-brainer. Um, for other women, they look at me like, are you kidding? You know, that's just not something I've ever done. And it's like, okay, well, now you are. This is, I don't call it a toy. I call it a sexual tool, um, which is a very different kind of feeling when you're talking to someone about a toy is to have fun, right? A toy is you're already having orgasms, but you're going to have more fun with the toy and do it, you know, better, quicker, different. A tool facilitates your ability to have an orgasm. So a vibrator is one of the many sexual tools that we use to facilitate orgasm. 80% um, of women use vibrators, by the way. I think those numbers are higher. There's a new study coming out that'll give us even better numbers. Most are with a partner. Most are partnered. It's not just on your own. Um, and, and that's one of the things we do. And when we talk about the role of hormone therapy in terms of orgasm, um, while estrogen isn't required, it is helpful because estrogen is a vasodilator. So if you are using estrogen uh, for people who are listening and they're using estrogen on their vulva or in their vagina, don't forget to put a little on your clitoris too. Your clitoris could use a little estrogen help and on your urethra. Um, you know, some people have this idea that they just have to use it really sparingly and no, put it all over your vulva, put it on all the parts, the labia, the urethra, the clitoris, it, it, it all will benefit from a little extra estrogen. Mm, yeah. Thank you for that. So a lot of this sounds really heavy and like kind of doom and gloom, like, oh my God, what's going to happen to me? I thought I was being so positive, telling you all the solutions. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just me, I think. No, I love everything that you're saying, but I'm curious, like, what's the upside of menopause? Like, what are some of the positive things that come? come, come oh, out the of this list thing? is long, starting with, you no longer need to worry about birth control. You no longer need to worry about PMS. You don't have to worry about horrible, crampy, heavy periods. You can have so much more fun sexually because you're just, you know, not in that world of worrying about contraception and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really about confidence and saying, okay, here I am entering this whole new phase of life where it can be quite frankly, all about me, all about my sexuality, all about who I am, as opposed to having a role or sex with a purpose. And keep in mind that if we're looking at the average age of menopause is 51, and life expectancy is for most women well into their 80s or 90s, we're looking, this is half of your life. It's not the end of your life. It's the second half of your life. And to me, 
this is a really positive thing. Mm. You know, buy the fabulous underwear and throw out the tampons. I mean, what could be better, right? I love it. Yes. Yeah. Do you find that people um, get more connected to their pleasure pursuits uh, once they hit menopause, once they realize like, oh, I am maybe more connected to my body or Mm -hmm. more connected to my pleasure? Some women do. You know, it's interesting and this hasn't been well studied, but what I have noticed anecdotally is that women who never had great sex, who are that category I was talking about that maybe they never had an orgasm, maybe it was never pleasurable, maybe whatever in their life made sex a negative rather than a positive. When they enter menopause, it's like they have this kind of concept of, oh, good, I'm done with that now. You know, and it's almost an excuse, if you will. It's almost giving permission to say, oh, it hurts. Oh, I'm not in the mood. Oh, I'm postmenopause. Sex just isn't part of my life. So no, for them, that's not going to be better. Um, what I find the women that it is better are the women who've always enjoyed being sexual and enjoy sex. And if things don't go the way that they have been, that they immediately get the kind of help to make that the case. The other thing I found is that it's women who have new partners. And I'm not telling women to leave their their partners if they like their partners or their spouses. But I am saying that for a lot of women, you know, this is a time to re-explore sexuality when they have a new partner, because there is, when we talk about libido, there is the monotony of monogamy, as we say, and you can love your partner and like your partner. But if you've been with this person for 20 years, it's not going to feel as sexy and as new as when it did when you first started having sex. And so, you know, there's a lot of strategies, particular sex therapists work with in order to kind of get out of that monotony of monogamy. But for a woman who is in a new relationship and 50% of women over the age of 50 are single and are out there exploring for a lot of them, not only do they have this new interesting sexual relationship, but quite frankly, for a lot of people who had bad sex or bad relationships, sometimes get lucky with a new partner who seems to know what he or she is doing so that they can actually have phenomenal sex, even if they didn't before. So that's always really interesting for me as the woman who comes in and says, you know, I never really liked sex much. And now I have this new partner. Oh, my God. Now I know when I've been missing the last the first 50 years of my life. And now I'm going to make up for it. Nice. Oh, I like I like that. Menopause, a new hope. That's your next book. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stryker, for your generosity with your knowledge and your time. Um, you are such a, a wealth of information. And I hope that everybody tunes into your podcast. I will certainly be doing that and buying all of your books. Um, so where can people go and find you and, and follow you and listen to you? Well, on social media, um, I am at Dr. Stryker, S-T-R-E-I-C-H-E-R, except for on Instagram, I'm at Dr. Strike. Don't ask. I'm still not sure how that happened. I have very little social media presence. I'm desperately trying to get more followers. So I'm just begging. I'm putting it out there. I need more followers because um, I'm really I'm really trying to connect with people that way. My podcast, of course, is called The Menopause Podcast. It's part of my Inside Information series. And my Inside Information series also includes my books. 
um, of which, you know, as I mentioned, I am writing more books and I'm, um, I'm, I'm out there. I'm, I'm giving lectures, I'm teaching, I'm doing all kinds of things. And I do have a, a website, drstriker.com. Um, so there's a lot of ways to connect with me. Fantastic. Well, I'm so happy that we connected again. And again, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all of this information with me and my listeners. And thank you for going down there. Yeah, uh, always. <laughs> okay, everybody, it's time for you all to spread your legs and spread the love. Tell your friends, tell your lovers, share and subscribe, like and follow. Make sure you follow at Dr. Strike on Instagram and follow us here at I Look Down There or me at Michelle Lamore. And remember that confidence comes from the bottom up. So grab a mirror and look down there. Till next time.